Hi, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hey everyone, we are uh, back for Cincinnati Zoo Tales and we have a really exciting guest here today. Yeah, we're really excited. We're being joined today by Dr. Arnaud Dibier, who's a conservationist working in South America, particularly with giant armadillos and giant anteaters. We're really excited to have you in Cincinnati. Hopefully you're enjoying your visit. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know it's a little cold for you, but <laughs> it's supposed to be <laughs> it's, warmer this it's time. It's very <laughs> cold for me. <laughs> Um, we were chatting just a little bit before this, and we always get excited, Mark and I say, you know, we have you as a real conservationist, you know, a scientist, a researcher, we, we're all conservationists, but you're the real thing to us. Like, but I know you don't agree with that necessarily. Yeah, no, I don't really agree with that. So and, tell us about and, it. And you just said another thing, um, you said a scientist, a researcher. And I think it's really important that people understand that conservation is multidisciplinary and um, research and science is just one step. And so you have the, the, you know, the data that you use that you want to then share to impact people's behavior, make some changes. Um, and then when you have those changes, you need to evaluate that to see if we're going the wrong direction. But you need all kinds of people to do that. So it's not just scientists and researchers, but, and the other thing is that I feel that I, through my visit at the Cincinnati Zoo, I am here to visit conservation partners. So I see the zoo as a conservation center, and there is so much expertise within this institution and the zoo that I can, um, I can learn from. Um, and just a few minutes ago, I was giving a talk during a, um, a lunch, a staff lunch, which was really informal and fun and you know I could see that the um, staff that was working with teenagers knew so much about how to engage with the next generation um, you know there, she was talking about uh, using social social media and TikTok and whatnot to try to you know and, and she was so good at pointing out how to get kids passion to you know with the information everything I mean that is things that I have no idea how to do. <laughs> and so uh, that young woman, for me, is a conservationist. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's using her expertise to make the world a better place and engage yes. with people. And that's really what you want to do. Being a scientist, science is not useful if the information doesn't get shared and applied. Mm -hmm. And so we need all kinds, so all kinds of people are conservationists. I like to call myself a conservationist, but I'm sure that, and, but I believe that everybody that I visited here at the zoo, they're all conservationists. They're all dedicated to saving species in the wild and making the world a better place. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely, it definitely takes a village. Like you say, it's so multidisciplinary. It takes all these different skills and talents and you have to join them as one for a truly successful conservation effort. I do find it really interesting for you to say that you think that you're here as a great opportunity for yourself to learn, because I think all of us staff who listen to you speak would say, we are, you're here to teach us, yeah. we, we want no, to learn from you. It, it's always both ways, and you always, it, I mean, um, I'm always, uh, are, so, so I'm president of a small NGO in Brazil called the Wild Animal Conservation Institute. And, and I founded and run two projects, one on giant armadillos and one on giant anteaters. And the amount of expertise that we get from uh, zoos has been astounding throughout the years. 
Um, we've worked with over maybe 40 zoos, 30 to 40 zoos throughout you know, the, the last 12 years. And many of our long-term partners help us in all kinds of creative ways, whether it's education, engaging with people, um, sometimes even uh, accounting, uh, team leadership. Um, mm -hmm. It's incredible the amount of support we've gotten from zoos. Um, one really exciting example is the biologist who works with me called Gabriel Masocato. He, he started, he was a, he, he studied biology, but he became a field guide in the Pantanal, a guide in the Pantanal for tourists. And then thanks to the Houston Zoo, we were able to hire him and they sponsored his salary. And then they sponsored him to come to the, the he won the Wildlife Warrior Award, which is an award that their staff gives out. He spent a month at the Houston Zoo where he got English classes in the morning and then trained in the different departments of the zoo during the afternoons. So education, communication, marketing, getting all those different skills. Um, then he started working in their um, uh, for two years in their in their engagement program. They had a, a program for school, for schools. This dynamic uh, conservation program for um, students. And he gave a class on you know talking about his work. Then he he was then he went to the the zoo sponsored him to do the Yuko program. And now he just won an, he the Future for Nature Award, wow. which is one of so he's one of three out of 268 applicants to have won this award at less than 35 years old. You know, Amazing. that's awesome. So all these skills and all this, so it's really been through his experience. He's a um, you know he barely spoke English before, and now he's you know all this the, the, all the investment from the, an individual zoo has made him into like you know one of the top conservationists. Uh, in his age group, so it's really, really cool. That is really cool. I'm glad you point that out because zoos are doing so much behind the scenes that a lot of people yes. don't even realize. And there's so much in your talk earlier. You were asking, like, do we know all of the conservation that the zoo is doing, or all of the work, or the money that's being donated, and the projects we're working with? And I consider myself somebody who's really passionate about all of that, and I try and be in the know, but there's so much yeah. going on and so many little projects that different people are working with through the zoo or with the zoo that I honestly couldn't tell you all of the mm -hmm. opportunities and all the projects that the zoo is doing and helping throughout, you know, the world locally or globally. And it's really cool and something that makes us really proud to work here. Of no, course. You should be really proud. I didn't know that the Cincinnati had zoo had so many programs with teenagers and even a high school program yeah. here. That blew me away. And I think that's, that's really, really exciting to be able to engage at such a, at such a level with with you know so many different groups so that that is really fascinating i find incredible mark yes. here actually was a part of our teen program growing up yeah. and now he works here full time yep. so <laughs> the I, I think that's just great right yeah. that that's really really amazing yeah especially to be able to get kids at that kind of impressionable age where you learn these lessons and they're going to stick with you in life when you're yeah. so impressionable so i know for me that was such a big aspect working here as a volunteering here as a volunteer is I didn't really know what possibilities were out there. I was just kind of doing it to take up some free time. And then <laughs> it ends up being my career one day. <laughs> but we do want to hear more about your story. And yes. I think it's really cool. You were a zookeeper yes. before becoming a conservationist, researcher, scientist, all these amazing things. So remember, we're calling everybody who works in a zoo as a conservationist. <laughs> but you're one too. So you were a conservationist working in a zoo and then into the field. Yeah. You're a conservationist working in the field then. How does that sound? That and good? now, yes. And um, now, with 
people and communication, but you started off as a zookeeper. Yes. What animals did you take care of? So it was a small zoo in France, and it was, um, so it was most, it, mostly mammals, but okay. you know, from primates to ungulates to carnivores, worked with a little bit of wow, everything. all of them, yeah. So and you're from France, correct? I was born in France, okay. but I, then I lived in the United States uh, half of my life. So we, when I was two, moved to the United States, then when I was seven, moved back to France, and we kind of did that back and okay. forth. And now you live in Brazil. And now I've been in Brazil for 20 years, yeah. Where's your favorite place to live? Um, I, well, it's always home, right, where your family is. Okay, and so yeah. my, I have a wife and two kids and four dogs, and so that's kind of, <laughs> that's home now, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And how many languages do you speak? So I speak um, uh, English, French, uh, Portuguese, and Spanish, four. Wow, yeah. amazing. Incredible, yes. yes. So you were a zookeeper and then you decided you wanted to learn more about animals in the field or what made you decide to move on? Um, it was, it was, yeah, I, I think it was the idea of getting to know animals, what, what animals are like in the wild. So in the early 90s, in, at least in Europe, there were not, zoos were not such uh, big uh, actors within, in the field, in conservation in the field. Um, and so I started off, you know, just working in the UK. First, I worked with badgers and, and mink, and then little by little got more and more involved in, in wildlife. Lived in Argentina, then Bolivia for a while. And actually, I ended up in, in Brazil. I went to do my, my PhD and ended up staying there. Yeah, I met my wife and, and, and ended up staying there. But um, I really like, and now our work, because it's funded by zoos, like I still I kind of get to go back a lot. And I love that, and I love visiting zoos. And I always kind of envy zookeepers, you know, and, and because I feel I love that intimate, um, that intimate knowledge, and you know that that love for individual animals that you get the opportunity to have to get to know an individual. And in my job, you focus a lot on on the species, on on population, on, on bigger things. But there is that side of me that. I mean, I just like the relationship to, to know that really, yeah, yeah, to have that close relationship with an individual, and and and, and that's the big thing that I miss from the zookeeping days is um, getting to recognize, even you know, how a zookeeper can recognize the mood of the animal they're yeah. in. I mean, that's weird, <laughs> but it really is the individual and the moods, and and um, and that's really interesting, and I and I like that, I'm, and I miss that. That's honestly the thing yeah. I think about the most. If I were to move on yeah. and, and and do something you know, studying a species or something, I would miss the relationship building with those individual yes, animals. That's my favorite part sure. of the job. So yeah, I can, I can imagine you would miss that. And so it's weird because I do have some individuals that are even their wild that I, have, I feel like I have a relationship with. Um, so there is, um, um, and I think that's part of, from, kind of comes from my zookeeping days. We name, we give individual names to our animals. So, I love it. So there's this uh, armadillo, Isabel, who, you know, is my favorite one. And and that's because she's the first one we caught, and we've been studying. And Isabel, um, we we just got. We don't monitor anymore uh, with telemetry because the but but the batteries run out, and it's, we use internal implants. Um, but but I monitor her through camera traps, and and we estimate that she's more than twenty years old. Wow. And and I know it's not true, but I kind of feel like I know her. Like yeah. I know how. The burrows that she I, I just know her, and I like that intimacy. I think it's and, true. And, and, I'm sure you do. And there's, I think it's part of. And then there's some also an anteater. I like there's one of them who's called Sharon, and I, I just also like to know more about her and how she. You know, so we, I, I still do kind of 
create that relationship with yeah. some individuals, and and that I really like that a lot. Too. Yeah, I'm sure you get to see the places that they tend to spend their time in, and you get to see them forage for food and raise young and all this. Exciting but yeah, so stuff. Isabel, we followed her young. But what's crazy is that I, I never. All the contact is indirect, so it's through camera trap images or uh, telemetry uh, signals, and so it's very different from that zoo contact, smell, and touch that you have, and we're, yeah. and and so yeah, we're we're actually you do in, the, in, in captivity, the, you know, under human care, the animal knows you, and you have some sort of uh, closer relationship. Uh, whereas we don't, you know, the, animal, the wild animal does not know we exist. Yeah. <laughs> that would be hard. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so will you just tell us before we get any further, because I want to ask questions about Isabel and yes. Sharon, <laughs> but tell people, most people probably know very little, if sure. anything at all, about giant armadillos. So tell us about like their natural history, what they like sure. to eat, where they're found, lifespans, all of that. Okay, so the giant armadillo is the largest of the 20 species of giant armadillos that exist. Um, here you might be more familiar with the nine-banded armadillo, which occurs in the southern United States, and it's, it's, it's actually a colonizing species that's kind of coming up north. Um, so they're found in Florida, Texas. Um, I hear you can find them all the way into Tennessee now. As far as that, yeah. Wow. And, and I yeah. think as, the, as, as um, it's getting a little bit warmer... I was going to say, of, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> I, well, I, I don't think it's a really good sign that they're able to... Cause, yeah, they're, if, so they're kind of naturally colonizing up north, and so yeah, I don't think that's a great indicator. Um, but the giant armadillo, so it's the, it's about the size of a Labrador Retriever. Um, they are imagine? that's insane. <laughs> from, from the, they're about um, so from the the they, they weigh about eighty pounds. Wow! And they're about five feet from the tip of the nose to the tip of their tail, and they have this huge giant claw on their middle finger, which they use to rip up. Uh, Termite and ant, uh, termite mounds and ant, uh, termite mounds and ant nests, um, which is their main food. They're strictly nocturnal, solitary, and occur at very low densities. So there's always very few of them. Um, our work has shown that they have huge home ranges. So it's 25 square kilometers, and oh, wow. maybe if somebody can translate that in miles, or what would it's it? about 10 square miles. So 10, 10 square miles. So miles. what would that translate to in Cincinnati? What do you have? Like, uh, do you have a park here, or do you have anything that's Mm. Ten square miles. So how how big I is the zoo? This, clearly, I yeah. How, how how big is, <laughs> how, how big is the zoo? Uh, it's about seventy five acres, acres. But that's a that different universe. universe. <laughs> um, goodness, you're really putting us how on many spot. zoos can you fit into a giant armadillo habitat? Oh Cincinnati zoos. A lot. Let's try to do the math to that. Yeah. yeah. So just to see. Well, I'll let you take that over, Mark. Here you go, 75 acres, which is the Cincinnati Zoo, roughly. 75 acres is about 0.1 square mile. Wow, okay. 0.1 so square miles, yeah, so you can see it, so it's 10 square miles, yeah, yeah so that's a lot of, yeah. So that's about 100 Cincinnati yeah. Zoos. Yeah. And that would be just for one giant armadillo? For one giant armadillo. So how enough. do they find one another for breeding? So um, males, males go on these walkabouts, and okay. so they have their territories, and they can... They can sometimes, they'll, they'll take these trips for three or four days. And giant terminals, so they dig these really deep burrows. Um, and, and, and on the sand mound, they usually defecate and urinate when they, when they, they dig these burrows. And so what a, a male will do is they'll, they'll travel and they'll, they'll smell the sand mounds. And that's kind of like their inbox, right? They're sending uh, messages. And then, so he'll look <laughs> and then he'll see if the female is real. <laughs> and so those really low densities, there's very little overlap. So it's an animal that's strictly nocturnal has very low densities in these huge home ranges. And so 
One of the threats to dinosaur medals is that people just didn't know that they existed. Um, there was uh, very little was known, but also people just didn't know that they were actually there. You never see them. Yeah. You never really see them. Yeah. Um, something that we discovered in the project that was really interesting, but also explains why they're so rare and so endangered, is that giant armadillos only have one pup at a time. And the interbirth rate that we found was uh, three years between wow. births. Oh, wow. And to make matters worth, worse, um, Sexual, they reach sexual maturity between seven to nine years of age. Wow. So it's a long time before. So you have to reach, so an animal has to reach seven years, let's say, and then they'll have one pup every three years. So you can see that their population growth rate is really low. Yeah. If we're, we were talking about nine banded armadillos, nine banded armadillos have four pups a year. Wow. Four quadruplets, actually. It's really okay. interesting because they're four identical individuals mm -hmm. but they have that once here so you can see that in um, three years we'll have one uh, giant armadillo produced a nine-banded armadillo would have 12 mm -hmm. pups wow. and so you can really see that just population dynamics you can see that that's one of the reasons they're so endangered is that any threat the removal of any individual has a huge impact on the yeah. population and what's the lifespan well that's that's something we're still answering okay but we were talking about um, uh, Isabel, one of my favorite individual uh, armadillos, she is over 20 years old. Uh, we calculate that because when we first met her uh, through, uh, through our first capture, she had already bred. Um, so we know that she was more than seven. And so, and, and, um, and, we, and then we caught a juvenile that was through the genetics we saw was related to her. And he was at least three years old. So we calculate she was about 10 years old when okay. we first met her, minimum. Of ten years old, and we just got her um, through her through our, our camera traps, and so she's now she'd be about twenty one because oh, wow. we've been following her for eleven years, wow. and so so she's going to give it. So, but that would make sense um, that an animal that um, reaches sexual maturity very late and has such few pups at a time, they should be able to live twenty five to thirty years. We yeah. would expect that, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, if it only lived to be 15, you'd only have two pups in yeah, your that, lifetime. That would not yeah. be, yeah, exactly, yeah. so that would not be, um, that would that'd be really tough. So, this is an animal that's really vulnerable to extinction um, because of its low densities and, and just slow reproduction. Um, and so, this is an animal with which we work, so we're studying in the world's largest freshwater wetland, the Pantanal, which is located in the center of the South American continent. And so we work in the Pantanal, then we work in another biome, the Cerrado biome, which is kind of scrub grassland. And that is a biome that few people know about, but has lots of endemic, not only animals, but plants. And uh, because it's more grasslands, over half of it has already been lost to deforestation wow. in the last 30 years uh, because it's been converted to cash crops. Mm. Soy, uh, corn, sugarcane, eucalyptus, all these cash crops. And that was, that's an important habitat for the giant armadillo. We also work in the, in the Atlantic forest. The Atlantic forest is, you know, a very endangered rainforest, which has been, um, it's what kind of got destroyed when Brazil was first colonized by the Portuguese. And now only about 6% of the original habitat is left and very, of course, highly fragmented. And our surveys have shown now that giant armadillos only occur in one state park, Parque Estadual do Rio Doce, um, which we have started working in since 2020. And, which, and it seems that there is probably a viable population of giant armadillos in that park. And oh, so, wow. so we're working there. We have a great relationship with the park authorities. Um, we have just 
united all the other species research projects there so that we can work together to stop uh, encroachment on the park and hopefully expand the park to other fragments. And so that's been really key to, to our work. Um, and, and I know that you think of me because of that, as you, you just said, oh, the real conservationist. And I think that you think of that because you just saw some images of me working in the field and everything, um, right, getting my hands dirty. But in the last two or three years, my job has changed a lot from being that field conservationist to now coordinating our projects and working much, much more with people. Um, I'm still a conservationist, but I spend less time in the field. And now, you know, our NGO, I started as just one person, but now we have a staff of 17. We have project coordinators for each of our initiatives, and I go visit them, but they run the day-to-day -day work. Um, but my work is now mostly working you know, with relationships and getting work, working in this new aspect, which is of coexistence, right, of people with nature, um, working with these different stakeholders, getting these different you know, public policies, working at that different level. And that's really where my zoo partners can really help me because you are good at that. You're good at talking to authorities, getting the message, of, message across, learning how to communicate, finding these different tools, um, and that's been really, really helpful. I think it feels to me, when we say these things, like you're the real conservationist, it feels that way because you have made this like really incredible, tangible difference, and you've seen these animals, you're protecting them, and now almost the most important point is you are making differences, and you're working with, you know, local authorities and helping make a huge change. I, I think that's incredible, whereas we're hoping we're making a difference, but I don't necessarily have one thing that I could We don't always say. see it. Yeah. yeah, and you are going on and like focusing on a few certain species and making sure that, you know, their livelihood is looked after. So Jen, I think you have to change your perspective and maybe that's something that you need to work out with the zoo. I mean, Mark is just, we just talked about, you're a tangible result <laughs> from, from the zoo's influence, right? It's I true. mean, your life got impacted, and now you're, you were a teenager who, was, who might not have got into this profession, and thanks to the zoo outreach and the zoo work has changed the course of your life, and has, you know, the zoo is building this army of conservationists, um, which you might not, so that, I mean, that's something huge to celebrate. Um, so is that something that your work is trying to do in South America, is build an army of conservationists? Like, you know, that's really interesting that you asked that because I think the next um, expansion of our NGO project that I would dream of getting into, but I, I don't have it really figured out. Mm. But I would like to create some sort of training center where we um, give hands-on experience, uh, internships, hands-on experience. We, we, do, we have been doing that. Um, and we get uh, professionals to come to the field with us. The Giant Armadillo has had over 85 people come and spend, you know, go on expeditions with us for two weeks to train and learn all about field work, etc. And the anteaters, we've had actually over 300 people oh, wow. uh, come and get these experiences. But what I would like to create is, is something so that, like, you know, so I don't have anything um, thought out yet, but I would like to create a training center for for 
youth probably for who are interested in conservation, but where you get experience with um, education, communication, that you know that 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 people realize that conservation is not just going out to the field with us. Because up until now, all the capacity building we've done is take people out to the field with us, but really realize that it's not. It's also um, it's not just that. It's also with the relationships with people, and so try to create that. I would also like to have reach, have more diversity in our team, and I, there's some minorities that are not represented in on my uh, in our team, and and I and I think that's also due to lack of opportunity. So I would like these to create some sort of training center that gives practical experience, but that you know pays gives an internship so that you know the fi finances are not an issue. Um, one of the biggest minorities in our state are indigenous um, people that, that um, uh, and, and there are reservations in Eric kind of like United States, but they often do not have access to, to the same um, opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a group that I would really like to reach and so yeah. provide incentives. And, and I will probably talk a lot with our zoo partners on how they reach, how do they run their 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 their, their training um, it's etc because I'm probably I will probably get a lot of ideas of how to to make sure that that happens and I, so I I think now we have a great team with lots of expertise not only field but also communication we have a coexistence um, department you know That's amazing. part with with two two people working on that and and I, so I do think we have a lot of offer a lot to offer and I would like it to be a yeah, practical experience not of course you know, give a little bit of the theory behind it, but not, not nothing classroom, really more hands-on. So that's what I would like to do, yeah. And this all falls under the umbrella of your NGO, correct? This is all um, under the umbrella of okay. our NGO, yeah. You mentioned coexistence, which I think is one of the most important things we need to learn to do everywhere, all over the Absolutely, world. You know, yes. there are issues here with just you know, hitting raccoons that are just trying to cross the road to get to some new food mm -hmm. or a new habitat. and. And then we talk about animals in Africa and all over the world, this is an issue. And, um, you know, I got to hear you chat a little bit about uh, giant anteaters, which you're also focusing on. But one of the things is habitat fragmentation and habitat loss and using these um, over or underpasses, right, depending on where you are to get these animals across the road safely because we're taking away their space and we need to learn to live with these mm -hmm. animals. And then also you mentioned just ranchers and people having animals on their land and they don't even know that they're there and that sort of thing. So you guys are helping teach about all of this and how to coexist. Can you tell us a little bit about those projects and things that you guys have been working on? So absolutely. And I think that coexistence of, you know, way with, Human wildlife coexistence is really the key area. We, we have been all we've always kind of been doing because I don't work in any national. The Pantanal is how to work. It's all on private land, so it's always been about working with people. Um, but what has been interesting is that coexistence is a field of its own. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a whole, and so we had um, a young woman come and she did her PhD with us, and so she's a you know specialist in this human wildlife conflict. Um, and, and so she's been really instrumental in coming within our NGO and it kind of putting a bit more of theory behind things that we kind of did naturally before, but she's sort of asking, helping us to ask the right questions to pinpoint exactly. And what, what is good about the, you know, studying coexistence is that going through a process really helps you to understand 
what you need to change, what you need to impact, and also evaluate to make sure that what you propose to do is actually working. Um, and so it, 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 it just gives you really great tools. I'll give you an example. We work in the Cejado with giant armadillos and, and beekeepers. So that was a huge surprise to me to find out that giant armadillos were knocking over beehives and, and causing this huge financial problem for, for, for beekeepers. Um, it actually took me a while to believe it. Were the beekeepers uh, retaliating towards the armadillos? Unfortunately, yes. And so was some yes and some no, but, and that's what really got me. At first, because so few people knew about giant armadillos, I, I didn't think, when I first heard about there being a, a, a challenge of coexistence between beekeepers and giant armadillos, I thought, surely they must have gotten this wrong. That's not possible. Um, and it was when I was giving a presentation to landowners that a, 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 a beekeeper told me that he had actually killed a giant armadillo that had been um, knocking over his beehives. And then I thought, okay, you know what, This even if it's just a misconception that people think it's giant armadillos, I have to investigate this because mm. it costs the life of an animal. But then, you know, you know we realized that, no, they were actually doing this. And what happens is, you know, our habitat is so fragmented, in our whole state, we ran a long-term study, did modeling and everything, there's only 69 big patches. And, but these patches of native habitat are where beekeepers also put their hives. And so they do, and they're, they're, it's really hard to coexist. Uh, when bee, and and um, so we did all these interviews, we found that this is a huge problem. For half of the beekeepers, actually, um, honey production is their main livelihood, source of income. And so when a giant armadillo destroys that, it, you know, a family will go hungry, right? So it's very uh, ser it's a serious issue. Um, and so there are mitigation measures that they can put in place, raising the hives. So then it depends on, on the way they work, but they're raising the hives, fencing the hives. And so we work. So that's we have a project called Armadillos and Honey, where we we propose the mitigate. We have collected all the different mitigation measures that other giant that other anti uh, beekeepers have used. And so we propose that to beekeepers, and then um, they put in place these measures. And then they get a certificate. They 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 we, they get a certification with giant armadillo giant armadillo friendly honey, and that will hopefully open new markets. And so we're just working on that. We just got our. Our first honey produced with the certificate. We have about um, 30 uh, beekeepers certified now. We are aiming to certify about 200 according to our maps and everything. Um, one of the problems is a lot of the beekeepers are small-scale beekeepers. Um, and so they often sell their, their honey to somebody who will then, you know, a factory that will then bottle them and everything. But now we have a, 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 one of the beekeepers is so enthusiastic about the project that he's built up his own company factory and has all the sanitary uh, licenses so this is going to be a, a giant armadillo friendly factory so that we have the whole so we cover the whole chain so that's so that's happening so you yeah. can imagine that this has been a lot of work just with people and beekeepers right yeah. i've never seen a giant armadillo from those areas just working with the beekeepers um and so all that has been happening why is it been interesting to have a coexistence scientist work with us is that she analyzed the conflict and was able to show us that through, through the interviews we had and reanalyzing our data was able to show us that this was a conflict based on economics and so there was no you know negative um, perception or preconceived ideas about giant armadillos which we'll probably find with lions and you know big cats mm -hmm. where some people just culturally hate them yeah. this no there was no cultural preconception it was really economic huh. however it goes to a level two conflict when they've tried mitigation measures that don't work 
then it, it then it can slide to a certain other level. And so that really puts the focus on us to, ooh, we have to get our mitigation measures right. Mm -hmm. And it really shows that the most important thing is the mitigation measures. Our goal now is to be able to, you know, do a whole a huge communication campaign so that the consumer is more interested in giant armadillo friendly honey yeah. and that in the future that they get a little bit more for that for that honey. You know. So it's, it's, so these are long-term projects, right? But it's and a really cool project. It makes me really excited to think about. Was it hard to convince these beekeepers to join in? Not at not at all, because they wanted they wanted to they wanted to get the technique um, to prevent um, giant armadillo attacks. So that was not very hard. Good. Um, but it is. But to get them to write, you know, put together the contract, because our contract has norms that was. That was actually um, through the Wildlife uh, Wildlife Friendly Network Enterprises, which is an American NGO that has that sets up. So we created all the norms with them, um, and so that has you know there's no deforestation, no child labor. You have to obey certain categories. So we have to explain all this to the individual beekeeper. That takes okay. so it's a bit of a process, and yeah. the contract takes a while. But the idea is that yeah, then 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 if they have the license to the factories have a license to ex export honey, if they have all the sanitary license and if they have the good traceability to our individually certified uh, beekeepers, then that can be exported. And so I think we'll be looking in a few years to export wow. ha honey from the from from these armadillos. Congrats. Um, so that's a little bit hard for the beekeepers to try to see that yeah. that everything is long term. They're more interested in in the mitigation measures than the certificate per se. But I do believe that as we persist and once we start getting results from the certification, I think that will work. Yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing, and it's it's a testament to like you said, conservation is such a multi pronged effort. Like yeah. you go down to study giant armadillos. Who would have ever guessed you would end up working with beekeepers and to market, certify right? local honey certification and learning about all that? Yeah, yeah. so, so that yeah. it's really really crazy. That's awesome. But you do you have mentioned that you work in the uh, the Pantanal region of Brazil? Yes. Would you paint a little bit of the picture for our listeners? I think a lot of people hear Brazil and they think you must be working in the rainforest, right? The Amazon's the only thing in Brazil. Would you just talk to people about what the ecosystem that you work in looks like? So the Pantanal in Portuguese means swamp. So it's the world's largest freshwater wetland, um, and it's it kind of like a mosaic environment. It's as if if you look at a plate, if if so imagine you have a plate in front of you, you kind of see the edges a little bit higher than kind of smoothens down. That's what the Pantana is like. It's a floodplain, and so around it you have the Cerrado, and then water kind of drains into the Pantanal, uh, down, and then eventually goes down to the Paraguay River. And so it's this big, big, big floodplain where um, there's with a mosaic environment. When the land is a little bit higher, you have pockets or strips of forested areas, and then the rest is grasslands. And so um, this dynamic of you have a marked you have a flood season, a dry season, and when it's a dry season, all that flood area just becomes really lush grasslands that. Are, um, you know, we've lost all our mega herbivores in the, from, you know, in the Pleistocene we had giant sloths and all these giant, no, we don't, now we have capybara. So it's interesting, there's actually an unoccupied ecological niche for these huge grasslands which are now uh, being grazed by cattle. Mm. And so the Pantana you have uh, these huge ranches which are the, the traditional uh, life, lifestyle in the Pantanal you have these extensive cattle ranching so you have very few cows per hectare or per acre 
um, and they graze in these natural pastures. Um, when the waters come up, they end up going closer to the forest, and so you have these natural things. And so the Pantanal, because of that, we don't have, um, it, it's kind of, the, the cattle ranching is for um, production of calves. And so the calves, when, when they're one year old, they, they, they get sold to the, to the Cejado where they get fattened up. Um, but it's really interesting. And, and so 97% of the Pantanal is privately owned, divided in these cattle ranches. And these cattle ranches, I mean, it's like in the United States, it would be the far west. You would imagine everything is done by horseback riding. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are no roads, so you get by, you know, people use horses to get by, use lassos. And it's, it's like, you know, the far west. It's a really, so I think people from Texas would really relate to the culture, <laughs> of, the culture of the Pantanal. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting tradition. And, and because, you know, it's meat production... People don't have a culture of hunting. Oh. Um, even though you'll see people walking around with guns and everything, they don't. Um, they don't. They, they don't hunt. So you have species, uh, neotropical species, such as peccaries or deer, marsh deer, um, that are found in huge numbers in the Pantanal because pe people don't really hunt them. Because in Pantanal we have meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's what we, you know. What we eat. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned, um, well, at least I heard in your chat that these giant armadillos dig burrows. Yes. And many, many species actually benefit from those burrows. And also, you mentioned that the water comes and goes. So, do they, how often do they leave their burrows and dig a new burrow? Like, yeah. if the other animals are coming in them, are they kicked out of their burrows by these other species? And yeah, then so, the water comes? so, so giant armadillos. Um, spend all day deep underground their burrows and their burrows are really large and, and, and deep and on average they dig a new burrow every two three days and oh, so, okay. so, so these burrows but remember their home ranges are huge and so they dig these burrows and when it gets flooded they'll they'll go to more a little bit higher areas of uh, the, the forested areas okay um and these yeah we documented over 70 different species using giant armadillo burrows which means that giant armadillos are what we call ecosystem engineers and the example you have here in the United States would be beavers, right? Okay. Beavers build a dam, modify the environment, a lake, and that creates a whole new environment resource for other species. Well, giant armadillos kind of do that at a different scale where they dig burrows, and then these burrows are used by lots of other species. Down in Florida, gopher tortoises okay, do that, yeah. so that's kind of similar. Um, and so what I always think is fascinating, this is a species we knew nothing about. People didn't even know existed, and yet they play such a huge role in the ecosystem, yeah. providing homes for other species and so that's really they so they have a really important role yeah it's very neat and i can't help but wonder why they would switch every couple of days that seems like a lot of work well for them it's not that much work they dig them extremely rapidly in a matter okay. of 15 minutes they've dug their burrow wow oh that's um, efficient <laughs> yeah and so you see the, the giant drummers if you see like they have this huge front claw which they can use to dig and rip up the soil and their back paws claws paws are really huge like shovels they can so in matter of minutes, they really throw, they can dig these really deep, deep burrows. Wow, that's incredible. They, the pictures and videos, everyone should look one up at the end of this and see what they're like because they're, I mean, imagine. Okay, so I hope you get to meet Dilbert or Juanita. We have um, six, six banded band. armadillos <laughs> that are very friendly, uh, great personalities, and they're pretty popular on our zoo social media. I've seen that, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, imagine a Dilbert 10 times his size yeah. like it would be really incredible they don't look exactly the same of course they're different but just i mean 
it's a really cool thing to see. So I think everyone should look up a video of a giant armadillo. Definitely. Like you said earlier, it's a Labrador. It's legitimately <laughs> the size <laughs> of a So yeah, look this up on social media, giant armadillo project, and yes, you, you can find okay. this up. Yeah, yeah and, and, good and to know. We're on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, and Twitter. And oh, good, perfect. I, I don't do the social media. But I've some everybody in the team. They, they love these things. I'm excited to look it up. And then, oh. will you tell us a little bit about the giant anteaters and how you got into those and how you're helping them also and their the issues they're facing? Well, I, giant anteaters, I think, no need no introduction. They're such an iconic, you know, strange looking animal. They have these long tubular tubular noses. They walk on their knuckles you know like a kind of like a gorilla they have these big shaggy tails and and so they're really just a beautiful majestic species um that unfortunately are um major victims of wildlife vehicle collisions so they collide um we, we count a lot of them uh killed on our on our highways and so in 2017 we started this big project called anteaters and highways to look at that threat and measure that threat and so we did road, you know, road surveys, and we did. We collared a lot of animals in three different sites. We had over 50 animals collared to look at their movement and how they went through the habitat. We we set up camera traps close and far from roads to look at occupancy and density and how that was influenced. Um, that's where we started working on social science and looking at people's attitudes, especially truck drivers' attitudes towards towards um, towards. Um, wildlife vehicle collisions and so that became that became it's a little different from the giant armadillo project because it's really focused we're really focusing on the, on this major threat of of of, of collisions and and I'm, and and now you know I'm really excited to say that we're being pretty successful we've been we've been really having a very successful partnership with the state government and uh, trying to get them to realize the the, the threat and in this case, and we've changed kind of the way we talk, we, you know, communication is so important. We don't talk about threats to giant anteaters, but threat to people. Because when there's a collision, and that's why we don't talk about roadkill or, or um, because we, the word collision really brings to mind that idea that something hits with something else. So it's a two-sided problem, really. That makes sense. And so yeah. we have to, we talk really about collisions and people's safety, mm -hmm. getting, bringing that home, that People also die on our roads. People get injured on our roads. People are left paralyzed on our roads. And so bringing to the government that this is a message. So it was really cool because the day we, when I first started this, we started with another group of other NGOs interested. Um, but when I was saying this, no, we have to use the word collision. And the Secretary of State, he had just gotten in an accident with a capybara, but he had a big, you know, fancy truck. And so he just... You know, well, he got a huge, a lot of expenses on his truck, but had he been in a small car, he could have died. Mm -hmm. And so that message of safety was really close to his heart. And so that's really, um, so that's really where we're at right now, trying to save. So, so our, our motto is really saving lives. Yeah. Um, and saving lives, when it's not just animals, it's also people. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to how important communication is and education and Communicate, talking. Yeah, so, and so really working with people. And so that project is now very much focused a lot of our energy is focused on working with state authorities testing some new methods and testing things that work or don't work but it's really um it's really looking at the um uh, institutional uh and human institutional political um uh 
ways to mitigate uh, the, this threat to people and animals. You know? Yeah. While, while you've been testing your methods, have you found anything that's successful and a solution to actually helping? Well, we, we, at, at the moment, we're really, um, we really believe in um, uh, fencing, mm-hmm. uh, fencing to link underpasses or because we, sometimes you have these underpasses that exist, but when they're not fenced, that means that we, you don't help guide the animals uh, to use and force them to use right. the How underpasses. How would they even know it's there necessarily? Um, now, camera traps placed at underpasses show that giant anteaters are using them. So, wow, that works. However, our telemetry data showed that only 1% of the animals used, crossed using um, the, 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 the underpasses. So, out of all the crossings, only 1% had occurred using an underpass. And that's because if they're not guided, they don't use them. So, so fencing, now you're going to say, oh, but what about genetic flux? You're separating... No. Well, first of all, the, the, the number of deaths is, is, is a much worse impact. But the fences are used to really guide these animals so that they can get to the other side yeah, safely yeah. and prevent these accidents. Because giant anteaters, they're beautiful, but they're dark. Mm-hmm. Their eyes don't shine light uh, back, reflect light like a, a, an ungulate, like a deer or, or a cat. And so, basically, when they, and they're kind of slow, so basically when they appear on the road, from far away, it just looks like there's a shadow, mm. but you don't really make, make it out until it's a little too late. Too so, late. they're dangerous, yeah. Man. And like you said, the idea is still for gene flow and everything to occur, and for the animals to move, it's just providing them with a safer route to do so. A safer route yeah. to do so, absolutely. Yeah, if you do it right, I'm sure that's the best way to go. Obviously, fencing with nowhere we're, to go. We're also, in, at the moment, but we don't have the results, we're, we're evaluating the impact of signage, you know, wildlife, wildlife signage, and see, um, does it raise, does, do people really decrease their speed? So, we're measuring car speed before, during, and after. We're conducting interviews to see what signs work well. Because those are, those are um, methodologies, methods that will always be implemented. People will always put signs up. But how useful are they? And, and, and so looking at signs, and, but can signs be improved to be more efficient? And so that's something we're also looking into. Yeah. Um, so looking into all these different it's interesting. Techniques. You go to like study a certain animal, and then you find out that it actually involves so much more. Yeah. And you're, absolutely, now yeah. you're studying science, so, not you necessarily. <laughs> but that's why conservation somebody. is really an adventure, right? It, it takes you, you, you know, one thing le- leads to the other. But it's really all about, you know, it, it's you know, getting these the co- coexistence, right? Understanding people's perception, um, finding the right tools to. to get the change you want to, evaluating if the tools you're using actually work mm-hmm. or not. And so it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a process. Yeah. yeah. And so it really does take a village, a whole team of different people with different expertise to, to make that happen. You mentioned earlier one of your favorite giant anteaters was named Sharon, I believe. Will you tell us a little bit about Sharon? Why she's your favorite? Like, well, I, I just like Sharon because she's she's a really good mother, and she she so at the moment we've maintained one of our field sites um, with uh, anteaters, and we we now start because when we did the population viability modeling, we saw that there was one piece of data that did not really exist for the wild, which was understanding female reproduction and mortality rates of juveniles and what we so so we start so now we started so we have our we maintain we uh, our females some females collared um but then when their pups when the pup reached about six months and is about to leave its mom we collar the, the pup mm. 
And so at the moment, right now we have 29 anteaters with collars and between the pups, the juveniles and everything. And so we look at how the pup um, uh, kind of will, will disperse. And so looking at that, and Sharon is just such a good mom. And, and for some reason, we, and we've collared a lot of her pups and seen how they, they've moved on. And so then we use the pups to see how they're dispersing because they can go, you know, over a, in a straight line over a hundred kilometers away. Wow. Oh, wow. And, and so... And now, and so now the project evolved to look a little bit because the biggest threat was, you know, we're looking at um, vehicle collisions, but it's also habitat loss is a huge threat. And in the last two years, we've had huge problem with soy, soy plantations. So all the cattle ranches are transforming into these soy plantations, which are absolutely devastating for giant anteaters. And so we're using the pups that are dispersing, well, the juveniles that are dispersing, we're using them as landscape detectives. So they're kind of, we're looking at their movement with the, with the GPS collar, where they're, they're telling us what, what habitat within the landscape is most permeable to giant anteaters. So what is the habitat they select to travel? So this is the kind of habitat that when we talk with state authorities, so we need to protect these habitats or these corridors of trees, these streams, and th these are the areas that need to be protected. But that's, what that's what's going to allow the gene flow through the Cejado to continue. We need to protect the these, these, these habitats and fragments. And so understanding that whole dynamic is really important. Um, yes, roads crisscrossing can act as a barrier, but so can you know, a huge field of soy yeah. if there's no connection be between it. So, so that's what we're trying to look at. So that, that's what we're looking at now also. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome data to show what, how valuable the land is and what really needs to be protected. What, what yeah. needs to be, and, and getting those images and letting the animals speak for us. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's really data. That, and that's data that's easy to present to, um, to decision makers when you can really show how the animal moves and explain why it makes sense and make it dynamic. Mm -hmm. it, it can really help. Before we wrap up, I'm curious, and I'm guessing other people are too, how do you, like I know you use camera traps and you eventually trap these animals and, and obviously release them and, and study them, but how do you get into that? How do you get permission to go out and do this? Did you, through your PhD, did you have some sort of project that you get permitted through the government or and then tell us exactly actually how you trap a giant armadillo how does that work well, well so first of all yes you need a license you okay. need to ask the government for the permission to, to be able to trap and capture these animals but it's just paperwork and so so when we first started we or, or zoo, we actually talked with a lot of zoo vets for to get the best anesthesia okay. procedure and it was an anesthesia procedure that then got tested at the Sao Paulo Zoo on their species in Arthur. Okay. And so you get all your, your, I guess the expression is ducks lined up or something like that, right? <laughs> ducks in a row. Yeah. Ducks in a row. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you manage to get all, all that. But so you, it takes a lot of preparation before you go out, set out and say, do I just that. can't imagine like, okay, I decided I'm going to study an animal that no one knows nothing about. <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to trap it and Well, study for me, it so that was it. You know, and yourself. I saw... When, when I first started the project, I mean, I, I was never meant to do all of this. So I, I was working in the Pantanal, it had already been eight years, and my wife, she works with tapers, and she saw a giant armadillo in an area. And that, to me, was a species I was really curious about. And it, it's kind of like the holy grail of, of mammals to me. And so I just put out a few camera traps um, in front of a burrow, and then I got uh, my first giant armadillo image. And... And and, and, and and that was a life-changing experience for me because I could not believe that such a huge 
prehistoric, I mean, dinosaur looking like species yeah. existed under my feet for the past eight years. I had never seen one. And then looking at the literature, there was really nothing about them. And then I just said, you know what? This is what I want to do. I, I, I want to learn more about them. Okay. And so that's kind of I, it, kind of like an obsession started here. <laughs> and which, you know, from just one person and ended up with, you know, having an NGO, two projects, 17 full-time people employed. So that's, yeah, it really became yeah. huge. Yeah, it's your incredible. life's work. It's amazing. So it's, it's amazing. it become, but, and that could have, and that would never, I really want to insist that I want people to all know that would never have been possible without our zoo partners. And once again, we have partnered with 30 different zoos and institutions that have always, um, been very, um, you know, always trusted us and put their faith in us. And, and so how do you get a funding for that project? Yeah, zoos actually, um, what people sometimes don't know is that in conservation, the biggest donors for species conservation are zoos. You have lots of organizations that will give to, de to prevent deforestation, climate change, redu reduction of plastic. But, you know, a lot of the big organizations, they have thematic projects. Whereas zoos, um, and it's due to their business of working with individual species, right? They're the ones who fund the species project. And zoos provide grants that I think are willing to take more risks on individuals. And so that's how we got started, you know, from these first grants from zoos. And, okay. and, 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 um, and now my, my NGO, out of the 17 staff, nine of my staff and these, some, you know, some of them have been working for 11 years. Danilo Arvet has been working 11 years with me. Um, nine of our staff are actually sponsored by individual zoos. I'm sponsored by the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, which, was, which owns the Edinburgh Zoo and Highland Wildlife Park. Danilo is, is sponsored by the Naples Zoo. Gabriel Miriam by the Houston Zoo. Um, uh, Andrea and... Um, and good and good to Andreas, our educator and communicator by the Reed Park Zoo, Mari, who does our coexistence work by the Chester Zoo, and the the our, the, um, the biologist who's a beekeeper who works on the armadillos and honey. He's sponsored by the Stuttgart Zoo in Germany. How cool! So all these different awesome. institutions work together in a, in in a really interesting way to through us and uh, all these different projects. So it's very very. Um, very, very cool. I don't think we would, we would never have been able to do it without our conservation partners. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also impressed you can remember all of them. I know. That's, but that's really cool. And yeah, that's, it's good for people to hear that zoos really are helping and, and supporting so yes, much. Yes, and I think the Cincinnati Zoo is a model of that. You do so much different kind of both research and institute conservation in the wild. But also I learned, um, I was learning a lot this, this past day on the, the work you do locally also for local conservation. Yeah. That's extremely inspiring. And, um, and talking with Molly and Lily, I think there's some ideas I would love to steal about what they're doing, which is really cool with the you local should. conservation. Yes. I will, it's not definitely. stealing. It's, it's and it's not sharing, stealing because right? it's, it's, it's absolutely sharing. Yes. And they are. And that's what I love about our zoo partners is that it, this is an industry that's always uh, excited to share their experience. And, and, and zoos really do that, whether it's animal care, animal welfare, or or techniques to on education, communication, or doing that there. It's an industry that is, um, whose culture is really about sharing um, best practices. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. If somebody finds a better way to do something, we should absolutely follow suit and, yeah. and do that too. And then they do that, which is not something you would see in other industries, right? No, right. This is, it's part of the culture of the zoo industry to share. You know? yeah. And that's huge. Yeah. That's very different. Yeah. Very collaborative, yeah. yeah. Very, very collaborative. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, before we do our quiz, is there anything you wanted to share about um, Isabel or any of your favorite parts of your job or that you're most proud of or anything else we didn't touch on? Boy, I'm, I'm, we touched on a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess of what I'm most proud of in my work um, now after 12 years, I think is the team I built. I'm, I, I really admire the people I work with. And the different, the dedication of, of the people that I that I, that I work with, and they're really dedicated to the cause, and and also to the people that we meet through this work. You know, um, the the people who coexist with wildlife and their willingness to do that, sometimes at a cost. I find that really, really, really inspiring, and really, really grateful and thankful for that. So. Yeah, you mentioned that the ranchers are actually interested in helping with fires and like putting fires out themselves. Correct? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I mean, working so with brave. them. So we we built um, after those catastrophic fires in 2020. Once again, thanks to the donations of our zoo partners. When the fires happened, you know, some of our zoo partners said, "How can we help?" And so we accepted donations, but first we we're just buying equipment. For the animal rescue center should be able to to save animals victims mm-hmm. of fires but because the donations came in we said no this is a lot of money we need to think about doing something what can we do that's a long-term initiative and then with with the ranchers they they're the ones who suggest well we could do this help us get equipment and training and so we started we built our a fire brigade yeah <laughs> so and we hope it's cool. gonna get bigger yeah. <laughs> so that was that was very cool yeah and so, yeah, last year I was in a, we did, we ran some training and there I was. And that was a beautiful moment where I was, you know, we're doing some training and I was putting out a fire. At my right, I had this, you know, this big landowner and at my left, I had a, a, a ranch worker. So you had a conservation, conservationist land, landowner and his worker just working together. That to me was a beautiful moment where you know working t- together on the sa- for the same cause. You know? That is, That's it's awesome. not something that happens all the time. When no, it, it's not. You know, no. yeah. when there's human wildlife conflict, it doesn't always no. have people that are getting along yeah. so well. But fact. I think that says a lot to about the project that you guys are able to to build down there is the fact that you are able to inspire the local people and get them involved with the conservation work, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Like, it's about it's you know it's it's all about relationships, right? Um, and I think people will get excited about conservation if 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 they if they like you and you're you you. So it's about rela- building strong relationships, and that's why it's so important that our staff continues long term, and why it's so valuable to have these long term partnerships with institutions that fund us, because it means that our capacity and and we you know we, we where there we have a long term presence there. So we do build the relationships. So with the landowners, we 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 had. Um, been working with them 2020, yeah, 11 years already on their land, so they knew us very well. Yeah. And, and, and that's what's important. So that's why um, they, they trust us to engage. I, I know that here in the United States it's the same situation where um, the world, you know, society has become extremely polarized on every issue, and emotions run really high mm-hmm. for the simplest thing, and it becomes often, unfortunately, politicized, and they're there, there's the size to get get taken, and and we really have that too in conservation in in Brazil, where you know you have the environmentalists being really strong on some issues, and then the the the, the agribusiness um, that's so they don't these are sides that kind of um, hate each other, and so it's so important. I mean, 
we need to produce food to eat, right. mm -hmm. and we need to preserve the environment to get you know for, for, for to, to have, so to have functioning ecosystems, to have water and, and resources that work. So we need each other, but so it's really about building these relationships. So. Um, getting to know each other, listening. So a lot of listening has to get be done. Um, and yeah, so building these relationships, it's so, so, so important. Because then people will start listening to you and you can have this dialogue. But if you start coming in, pointing out fingers, mm -hmm. not, not, not understanding the person's livelihood, the way they live, and well, their perspective. That's why, you know, we talked about it, coexist, and social science is so important. It's really the future of conservation, understanding these different perspectives. You know, putting yourself in other people's shoes to understand before you make, you know, these huge recommendations where you're threatening sometimes people's lifestyles, right? You have to really have that understanding, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Relationships are very important in everything. Relationships yes. are so important. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> All right. Are you ready for some trivia? Yes, I, absolutely. Yeah, I do have trivia for you if you're up Good. for it. Okay. I'm up for it, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I got a pretty short one today. Just three questions for okay. you guys. The first one, I wanted to dispel a common myth with this question. I think a lot of people in pop culture will hear like the word armadillo. They think of these animals that roll up into a ball and they roll all the way down the hill, whatever. <laughs> but most armadillos, almost all of them in fact, do not roll up into a ball. But there is one species. What is the only species of armadillo capable of actually rolling up into a full ball? So the three-banded armadillo, yeah. The three-banded... And I knew that from working with them in the yes. interpretive collection. Yeah. <laughs> and they are actually the only... Well, there, there's, two spe there's two species of... Oh, oh. three-banded. Matacus and Tricinctus. Those are the two species that there are. But um, it, it's, it is the three-banded armadillo, yeah. It's the same genus, just one... And those are just those two species. And they look alike, the three band, they're both three banded, yeah. yeah. Awesome. We have the uh, southern armadillos that so are you have Matacus, three banded, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, but there's also the Brazilian, correct? The Tricinctus, yeah, that, that is endemic to the Caatinga, to one area in Brazil. Okay. Interesting. Have you seen any of them down there? Yes, well, yeah. but um, I, I saw the, 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 the Matacus, I saw them in, because uh, they, they do occur at the edge of the Pantano, mm. so I have seen them in the wild, the Matacus, so the one you have here, and the Tricinctus, I've only seen in a Brasilia Zoo, yeah. Okay, interesting. Oh, sorry to go on, I've been wondering, I'm keep forgetting to ask, are there any giant armadillos in a zoo anywhere? So, there are, in North America and Europe, there are no, there, there are currently no giant armadillos, okay. Um, but if you look at uh, species 360, the, the, the Zims, oh, yeah. there were, um, I think, um, in 16 different institutions in Europe and North America, 16 giant armadillos have been um, placed under human care in the 60s and 70s. Oh, that's um, a long time ago. One of the zoos that, you know, um, that, that, that had them was um, the Oklahoma City, o Oklahoma okay. had them, the, um, what was it called? It's in Chicago, the... Um, uh, Brookfield? I think it was Brookfield Zoo that had them also. Okay. Dennis Merritt, yeah, so he had, yeah. So they had, so there were, there were there, there has been some giant armadillos. And actually, we were talking about longevity. There was one giant armadillo that lived 16 years in captivity, the okay. one that died at the Oklahoma Zoo. And so, um, you know, that's the kind of data that's precious for us that, that we can't get. So because there were no giant armadillos, there are currently no giant armadillos in North American or European zoos. Uh, there are a lot of key data that we don't get. There is, there are some giant armadillos in, there's a zoo in Colombia, Los Ocaros, who has, 
giant armadillos. Okay. Um, and there could be some in, in, in Bolivia. I mean, in some countries there might be giant armadillos. We just don't know about them. Okay. We had a giant armadillo in Brazil, in the Brasilia Zoo, called Mabu, which was an orphan that was rescued, and but she, but she recently passed away. Okay. But she, she had been there. But it's, it's not an animal that you can find easily in this no. There's and, and I always insist upon that. It's amazing that our project has been supported. So 80% of the funding of the Giant Armadillo Project comes from zoos, and there are North American and European zoos, and yet no North American or European zoos huh. have giant armadillos in captivity. Yeah. I imagine it would be a a difficult species to have under human care because they have such large home ranges and they burrow and they dig yeah, these crazy. Yeah, and, and, and I don't, you know, and because they're nocturnal, yeah. I don't think they'd be that much fun yeah. for people to, to have. Um, and and because their breeding is so, so, yeah, yeah they'd be, probably be pretty difficult, yeah. Mm. So I, I would, I mean, I don't recommend, I think, you know, we, we, when we talk about uh, captive breeding and breeding of animals, I, it's, it's one of the conservation tools in our toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's, it's for giant armadillos at the moment, there is a need for that. That makes sense. So it's, yeah. it's not a tool that can, that can be really applied yeah. to them. But for other species, of course, it's an essential tool and, and it's part of the, the tools that you want to look into, yeah. For sure. Alright, next question. We got a question one for one here. Question two. Due to the diet and low metabolic rates of giant anteaters, they have the lowest known body temperature for placental mammals. What is their body temperature? So 34 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that's in Fahrenheit. Ooh. I've got it in Fahrenheit, so I'm gonna oh, do no. the conversion here. Jenna, do you have a guess? It sounds like he knows the answer. It sounds like <laughs> Should it. I just guess Fahrenheit? <laughs> it's probably yeah, between 34 and 35. Yeah. I'm gonna guess 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know the. So, Dr. Arno, to no surprise, is correct. <laughs> Jenna, you're a little bit low. You're <laughs> a little bit low. low. It's 89 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, wow. so. For comparison's sake, obviously humans are about 98.6 yeah. is what's average for us. So and so so and that's you know it's for big animals such as a giant anteater and they have exactly low body temperature, uh, low metabolic rates and so what's interesting is for the giant anteaters they adapt to that, and so they adapt their um, behavior and when it's really cold. Um, they will be more active during the day, during when there's when the sun oh. is out, and when it's really hot, they'll be more active at night. And so they, they play with it. So their activity uh, changes with the temperature, exactly for what the reasons you pointed out. That's fascinating. And did you, you don't expect that from a mammal. You expect that from a reptile. Yeah. <laughs> so they, and did you know that their huge shaggy tail, which is so they use that as a blanket, they insulate themselves with oh, that, that shaggy that tail. Sense. So they roll up in a ball. And then they'll insulate themselves. I've never yeah. seen that before. How that cold does it get at night usually? Well, we, I mean, this will be like our winter, like the most extreme that we have. That's okay. why I'm freezing here. It's about 35 degrees. And we'll have like these cold fronts come in. It won't be like a month of that. It'll be just a couple of days. Okay. And so what will happen, we'll have these cold days. The animals will come out more around, you know, 12 to 4 o'clock during these peak sun hours and, uh -huh. and, but when it's really hot they'll become more nocturnal so that's you know that's Serving interesting their energy yeah. and, and gaining fascinating alright next All right. question last question for you guys the glyptodon is in glyptodon Oh, thank glyptodont. you, thank you for correcting my pronunciation. <laughs> Wait, how do you pronounce it? Glyptodont. Yeah. Glyptodont. Okay, there we go. They were an extinct relative of the modern armadillo. They went extinct during the last ice age. Please. How large was it? I have 
The pounds. size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Dr. Arno, three for three. Yeah. This animal was an armadillo that was approximately the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. 1,700. Yeah. It's estimated about 1,800 pounds. Which we think the giant armadillo is yeah, obviously very impressive yeah. and very, very large, but they're at what, 100 pounds about? So, yeah, they could be 80, 80, 80 pounds, yeah. Okay. 80 to 100 pounds, yeah. What did they eat? Well, I think they were mostly vegetarian. They were also mostly oh, vegetarian. vegetarian. Okay. But they also dug these huge tunnels, you know, just like the modern day giant armadillo builds these tunnels used by other species. There are relics and evidence of these glyptodont uh, tunnels and burrows that are appearing in in Argentina and all these in all these different places. Do they look like caves? Which, which, <laughs> which could be used by people and yeah. all, sorts of, all sorts of other yeah. species. Yeah, I really Incredible. when you look at South America and you know giant sloths and all these. I mean, that was like the age of the the species of Xenarthra, right? The the the, yeah. the 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 species of the, so yeah, giant armadillos, sloths, and you know just these. Huge animals that massive herbivores, massive yeah. herbivores that you wish you could have seen. Yeah, know? I can't imagine. Inspiring. I'm impressed, Doctor Arno. Three yeah. for three. Knocked out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank Jenna. you so much. You've been so inspiring, and we want to know what can I do? What can we do? Give us one thing that you think could help the world. Anything. Well, I always think you know. I really do believe in that. Act locally. I think globally, act locally. I yeah. really believe in that. Sometimes and, we forget that. And, and I don't think people have to feel guilty about what happens in South America. But so try to do things that you can you can influence here. And I would really encourage everybody listening to this to go come to the Cincinnati Zoo. Come visit, and if you're not in Cincinnati, go visit your local zoo and participate in the initiatives that they have. There are great um, local conservation initiatives that the zoo has in place, and I, I've only visited today, arrived yesterday, but I've already learned about initiatives to plant um, wild flowers in your backyards to encourage the pollinators, um, and so transform your backyard into you know a, ha a haven for pollinators. There's also some citizen science work that's being done with taking pictures of bees to identify them. And I'm sure there's a lot more. So come to the Cincinnati Zoo or whichever, wherever, wherever you're listening to this. Um, go to your local zoo and try to get involved in the local initiatives for conservation because conservation is your backyard. You know, it happens at home and it happens in everyday attitudes. And so Look at, look at the um, initiatives that your zoo is promoting and get involved. There's a lot of exciting things to be done, yeah. yeah. Great. I love, love it. it. That's a good one. Yes, yeah. for sure. It's been so fun. Your work yeah. sounds really interesting and it sounds like you're doing so much, <laughs> so much good in the world. So thank you for well, all thank of your you. Hard Well, work. thank you so much for having me. And thank you. This was great. Thank yeah. you so much. Do you have, one last time, do you have a, a website or some social media that you can maybe oh, yeah. plug to look at if sure. people are more interested? We have, so you can look at our website, um, uh, which is ICAS, which is I C A S conservation.org.br, I think, or .com. And then we have, uh, so we have both projects are on Facebook and Instagram Anteaters and Highways and um, Giant Armadillo Project. And you can, and um, if you're listening to this, get in touch with the zoo. If you have a personal question, you can get in touch with me. Get in touch with the zoo and they'll forward your, your contact and I'll be more than happy to answer Amazing. any Thank questions. You. Yeah. Yeah. 
and we have I, I send out these really informal updates regularly which Lily gets which I can which you're more than welcome to and anybody who wants to sign up can get these updates okay great yes that's awesome fantastic. yeah definitely go learn more because us talking about it does not do justice to yes. some of the photos yes, and videos that we've seen up. it's really cool yeah, great wild. well thank you so yes. much well and thank you guys so much for having me and for this wonderful initiative of, of podcasting and and being able to talk and share with everybody, that's wonderful. Yes, yes. Thanks, for, thanks for being here. We're so excited to have yes. you. One of our very special guests. So thanks everyone for listening and have a great day. Until next time, take care.